If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. There is something of a moral panic about homosexuality that emerges in Britain around 1911, and this gets picked up in the Navy, and reforms are pushed through there to try and find ways to suppress what is generally referred to at the time as unnatural crime, unnatural vice. That was Matthew Seligman talking about homosexuality in Britain in the early 20th century. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. In today's episode, you'll be hearing from Professor Matthew Seligman, who's a naval historian based at Brunel University in London. His latest book explores the reforms made by Winston Churchill to the Royal Navy just before the First World War, ranging from pay and rations to punishments and the treatment of homosexuals. He spoke to our digital editor, Emma Mason. So perhaps you could just start by setting the scene. Uh, What what motivated you to write this book? Well... The apocryphal quotation about naval tradition being nothing but rum, sodomy, prayers and the lash is, you know, quite a well-known one. And I must have, you know, picked that up over the years. And I just happened to be working in an archive one day. I can't remember what I was researching, but it had nothing whatsoever to do with this. And in sort of quick succession, I found a bit of paper talking about reform of the spirit ration. And then... 10, 15, 20 minutes later, I found another bit of paper talking about homosexuality. And it got me wondering if this quotation was just a story or if there was actually something to it. If the reason Churchill said this, if indeed he did say it, because as you know, that's open to dispute, but if that was because these were things that were actually coming up at the time. And then when I delved into it, I discovered that actually everything that was in the quotation was something that was being discussed whilst Churchill was first Lord of the Admiralty, and and quite a bit more on top of that. So the quote began to come to life. You could see why someone would give that answer um, in respect of naval tradition. And then the more I delved, the more I found. So I just kept going, really. Fantastic. And and to set the scene for us a little, what was life like for a sailor uh, in the Navy sort of before 1911? It was fairly hard. Um, pay was not brilliant. Um, conditions were pretty tough. Discipline was strict. There was a lot of work. And the Navy was changing in the sense that the naval race with Germany was pulling more and more ships home. So more and more people were engaged in the sort of hard work of preparing for a fleet action in the North Sea rather than traveling the world. And it was not a very attractive combination because 
if you had the skills to become a sailor in the Royal Navy, you had the skills to join the Merchant Navy, and the chances were you'd be better paid, have much less strict discipline, and, and might actually see the world. So it wasn't an easy life, although it did you know, present certain challenges and interest, and more than 100,000 people joined it, so it must have had some appeal, but it wasn't easy. And just to understand, so Churchill becomes the uh, first Lord of the Admiralty in October 1911, and at this time he decides things need to change. Why Why was that? Well, the interesting thing about Churchill is that in 1911, he's sort of on the radical wing of the Liberal Party, and he'd cemented his reputation as a social reformer. He'd been president of the Board of Trade and then Home Secretary, and he'd enacted quite a lot of social reforms. And then he comes to the Admiralty, you know, tail end of 1911, as you said, and most people assume that thereafter all he's interested in is preparing for war against Germany. He sort of gets sucked in to the... Uh, material side of, you know, being the political head of the Navy. But actually, he hasn't lost interest in social reform at all. And so whilst he's still quite keen to develop the uh, the uh, Royal Navy so that it's ready for war, he's still interested in carving out um, a better life for people. And so these two things happen simultaneously. So when he becomes First Lord, he's he's replaced Reginald McKenna. And he has a brief from the prime minister, which he's got to set up a naval staff. He's got to prepare the Navy to escort the British Expeditionary Force to France, should that be necessary. And he does all of these things. But at the same time, he turns up and says, right, I'm going to make pay better. I'm going to make conditions better. I'm going to improve things for sailors. And some of this is motivated by necessity, because the naval race means the Royal Navy is growing. And because of the reasons I mentioned earlier, you know, the difficulties of naval life, it's not that easy to keep finding more sailors. And it's not that easy actually to find more officers either. So they have to make it more attractive. But Churchill wants to do that anyway. That's what he's carved his reputation for uh, as a politician. And so he just keeps going. He's looking to improve the Navy's readiness for war and improve conditions at the same time. Almost the first thing he does when he gets into office is, uh, as, as um, First Lord of the Admiralty, is start looking into pay and conditions for sailors. Um, now, you could take the view that's necessitated by um, falling recruitment, but equally, it's what you would expect from someone who's um, enacted social reforms in his previous offices. He also sets up a committee to look at naval discipline very, very early on. Again, something that you can easily understand from someone who's carved a reputation as a social reformer. So, it's not entirely surprising that he does this. And whilst all these motives are probably interlinked, I'm pretty sure that his sort of political instincts and personal background, you know, pushed him in the same direction that necessity was probably also pushing him. And what changes did he bring about? We'll obviously go into them in more detail, but as an overview, what, what exactly did he set about doing? Well, the first thing he really gets his teeth into is trying to improve pay. Um, I mean, your, your average 
sailor is basically receiving, you know, give or take allowances and other things, basically receiving the same amount of money that they would have received in the mid-Victorian period. This is despite prices going up and wages improving elsewhere. So he looks to improve pay and conditions. Conditions are also important, but I mean, pay tends to get the headline on this. He looks into the spirit ration. I mean, sailors, if they want it, have a daily rum ration. It's not a small rum ration. And the Liberal Party in the early 20th century is associated with the temperance movement. Their opponents are associated with um, publicans in the brewing industry. The liberals are associated with temperance. And so they have a political interest in advancing temperance. But also from the Navy's point of view, you don't have a very efficient service if at 12 o'clock every day, uh, people consume a great deal of rum. So there is, there's a double motive here. He's looking to you know, reform the spirit ration. Then, there, as I said, he sets up a committee on uh, naval discipline. Um, naval discipline is deemed not to be working as well as it might. Some of the practices are a bit archaic. Others don't function very well. So he's looking into that. There are also questions to do with organized religion. Um, I mean, two questions, really. One, what is the best way to get high-quality religious um, ministrations aboard ship. But the other question is how to deal with the sort of quarter of the naval population that are not Church of England. And again, the Liberal Party is associated with the nonconformist interest at this time. So there's a political but also an, ex um, an expedient motive to deal with this. And then perhaps less sort of progressively from our point of view, there is something of a moral panic about homosexuality that emerges in Britain sort of around 1911. And this gets picked up in the Navy and reforms are pushed through there to try and find ways to suppress um, what is generally referred to at the time as unnatural crime, unnatural vice, basically things implying deviance rather than a sexual preference, which is how they see it. Okay. And, and uh, I think homosexuality was, of course, illegal at the time. It is illegal at the time. I suppose you can't be any more or less illegal, but it's probably frowned upon even more in the Navy than it was in civic society. Uh, and civil society is very unkeen on it. These things go in waves. So things like the Oscar Wilde trial tended to highlight things uh, in the sort of late Victorian period. And around the time Churchill um, takes office as First Lord, a number of things are occurring to highlight the issue in the Navy. So it's a sort of live issue at the very point he um, becomes political head of the Navy. If caught and convicted, they, they would indeed get, get punished. But in, in the sort of, sort of around 1900 in the Navy, there was something akin to a sort of don't ask, don't tell policy. So for a variety of reasons, the Navy had, dis or the hierarchy of the Navy, had decided that there wasn't really a problem here and there was no real need to highlight it. Because if you went looking for um, homosexuality, if you encountered homosexuality, and you brought it before a court-martial, then several things might happen. First of all, there'd be a lot of attendant publicity. And 
there are several examples from the early 20th century where the Navy takes a good look at this and goes, we could do without the publicity. Then there is the not inconsiderable problem that quite a high standard of proof is required for um, conviction. So if you take sodomy, which was considered the most um, serious of the so-called homosexual crimes in the Navy, you needed actual proof of a physical connection between the two people. So you would require eyewitness testimony or an admission of guilt, and this tended not to be available. So you could have a lot of publicity for something you couldn't actually prove. And when you add to that the fact that if there were people suspected of homosexuality, there were other ways of dealing with it. The principal one was simply to offer what would these days be termed an administrative discharge, which at the time was called dismissed services no longer required. And basically, the admiralty was empowered simply to terminate someone's employment in the Navy. They didn't have to provide a reason. They could just say services no longer required and the person would be dismissed into civilian life. There'd be no stain against their record, um, so there was no punishment, but they could just quietly get rid of them. And for all manner of troublemakers, as perceived, dismissed services no longer required was a remedy, including for people suspected of, but incapable of being proven of committing homosexual uh, offenses as then existed. They didn't feel there was a problem, or not a very big problem. Such a problem as there was would generate bad publicity. Um, They might not be able to prove it anyway, and they could deal with it by other means. So, you know, why go to the trouble, I suppose, was what they were thinking. So at this point, the Navy are generally turning a blind eye to these practices. But um, what changed in 1911? Why was there now a determination to root out homosexuality in the Navy? Well, the starting point is when they decide maybe there is a problem. And this is due, I think, to a combination of reasons. Now, one of them I can't prove, which is you've got this interesting coincidence that in um, civic life at around the same time, there's beginning to be a, a bit of a swing of the pendulum towards you know, more prosecution of homosexual offences. In the Navy, what happens is a series of offences basically all come up at once. So whereas there have been practically no, um, what I think the um, head of the Naval Law Branch calls disgraceful conduct offences in 1909, a few more, but still precious few in 1910, there's a whole raft of them in 1911. And it kind of culminates with a actual court-martial of three sailors on board HMS Fox all of whom are convicted of sodomy. And this, in combination with a number of other offences, leads the Navy to think, actually, something's going on here. And you can see this in the analysis from the Naval Law Branch. They start looking at, they look every year anyway, at what offences have been committed, what punishments have been issued. They have to issue an analysis to Parliament. And they're doing this as a routine, and they, they notice the spike. And in the private correspondence, you can again see them noticing the spike in offences against morality, as they call it. And this leads to a decision to take action. Uh, You know, as the memorandum that eventually heralds this says, um, 
their lordships are concerned that um, crime, homosexual crime, not that they call it that, but homosexual crime is more prevalent than previously believed. They've identified this as a problem. What happens next? What happens to homosexuals in the Navy who are identified? Right. Well, the the Admiralty issue a confidential circular letter. So that's one to senior officers only, in which they announce that there's a change of policy. So the circular letter includes a sort of covering letter from the um, Secretary of the Admiralty and then a long memorandum about homosexual crimes and their detection and um, prosecution. And basically, the letter says, we're no longer going to just ignore this. We want to bring these people to justice. And then the memorandum explains that actually there are processes that can be made to work, that this is not quite as difficult as people think. And the Admiralty would like the commanding officers aboard ship or the commanders of naval stations or whatever not to ignore this, but to gather evidence and prosecute. And they they list the various categories of offence, and they list the kinds of evidence that could be used uh, to form a case. And they say, if this comes up, let's take this to court-martial, which is all well and good, except many of the fundamental problems of gathering evidence actually haven't changed. And so what happens is, um, this memo gets issued, Churchill becomes First Lord of the Admiralty shortly thereafter, and you get your first test case a few months after that. Now, I should say at this juncture that nearly all the key files on this have been destroyed. So you have to reconstruct backwards from you know, entries in record office notebooks, uh, various other registers of um, Admiralty papers and things to work out what happened. What seems to have happened is that a series of cases were detected on the um, battleship HMS Lord Nelson. Uh, there's a rather laconic comment in the Record Office Digest that simply says for Lord Nelson, crime prevalent. But what this turns out to mean is a number of people have been found with syphilis in ano. So they've contracted venereal disease and it's in a part of the body that is suggestive of uh, homosexual connection. And so you have prima facie here an opportunity to test out this policy. Only what happens next is that instead of bringing these people to court martial, what they do is they are tried by the captain. It's a form of summary punishment. And the commanding officer of HMS Lord Nelson. Uh, tries these people by um, summary punishment. They're found guilty and they're given 90 days hard labor and then dismissed with disgrace. Now, it'd be interesting to know why he did that, which would be difficult to answer with the paperwork having been destroyed. But what we do know is that this is taken on board by the Admiralty and another confidential circular letter is issued as a direct consequence of this, more or less saying, okay, this worked here, scrap what we said last time about court-martials, let's go for summary punishment as the route. And so that's instituted, you know, you get uh, um, this new confidential circular issued, and again, you, you get a potential test case here. Now, we don't know how many people were brought before summary punishment because the records for this don't survive, so we can't easily work out and see how many people were caught up. 
But what we do know is in 1913, early 1913, um, a sailor on board, uh, believe it or not, HMS Irresistible, is basically brought before the captain for this process. And he is given 90 days and dismissal with disgrace, and everything seems to be going normally. And then suddenly this is reversed. You can check in his service record and in the digest, this is suddenly turned into dismissal service is no longer required. And no explanation exists for this in the service record or the digest, why they suddenly do this about turn. But almost immediately after this happens, another circular letter, confidential circular letter is issued in which the instructions are basically, if you're going to do this, do the paperwork right formulate the charge this way, use these forms. And so I think we can read backwards and say what happened was they basically got the process wrong. And the sailor was able to exploit this um, to escape the punishment the Admiralty had in mind. So they issue this other one where they say, okay, in future cases, this is what you need to do. And then you get kind of a third test case, which is probably the most important of them. And it's slightly distinct from the previous ones, because you get a sailor on board one of the ships in the Cape of Good Hope squadron, and he's found to have contracted gonorrhea, so doesn't fit the pattern of syphilis and ano that they've been using. And they apply the process to him differently, possibly because it's a different pathogen, it doesn't quite fit the rubric. Again, you know, the actual documentation has been destroyed. But what they tried to do in his case is prosecute him for a very specific naval crime called uncleanness. Now, it fails. The sailor is um, able to go free and, in fact, has an exemplary war record and, you know, continues to serve with distinction. But obviously, someone takes note because they have a look at this and immediately afterwards, they issue another confidential circular, which is really the key one in December 1913 which they basically go back to the beginning. So they take the original one with a memorandum and a accompanying document, and they outline that what they want people to do now is, at the first suspicion, they want to get medical evidence. So the medical officer has to test for venereal disease. If this venereal disease could only have been contracted, uh, to use the parlance of a time, via contact with an infected male organ, then the person in question is to be tried by court-martial for uncleanness. And so what you have is a new process set up in which medical officers will provide the evidence and a crime which incidentally doesn't exist in you know, metropolitan civic legislation, it's unique to the Navy, a crime has been found with a different standard of proof. So all you need for a conviction is a case of venereal disease, the origins of which is in the wrong place as far as the um, Navy's view of homosexuality is concerned. And across 1914, prior to the outbreak of war, they eight people are brought forward for uncleanness and seven are found guilty. And this is a huge upsurge in successful convictions for homosexuality. So they, they have a process in place now by which they can do what they want to do, which is not just get rid of people, but punish them for essentially homoerotic activity. What were Churchill's personal views on homosexuality, do we know? Well, that's that's an interesting question. And we, we have 
Not a great deal of evidence. We do know that when he was accused of homosexuality himself, he uh, brought the matter to court. So he clearly realized that you know his political reputation depended upon vigorously defending his heterosexuality. Um, he had a number of homosexual friends. I mean, his private one of his private secretaries at this point, Eddie Marsh, was uh, homosexual. Uh, didn't hide it particularly well. Uh, and Churchill described him as a friend for life, as indeed he was. And of course, Churchill, um, you know, there are various stories associated with Churchill. So, you know, the, the famous one about his reaction to being told a minister had been caught cavorting with a guardsman on Hampstead Heath in his reply, you know, on the coldest night of the year, it makes you proud to be British. It does kind of suggest that he was quite relaxed and humorous about this. And that, of course, poses an interesting question as to who's driving this policy. Because whilst the first memorandum um, from sort of September 1911 slightly predates Churchill as first lord, every other part of this process, you know, he's, he's in control. So he's either involved implicitly as political head or more or less, but the records were destroyed. So there's no way of knowing... Really? No, unless something else crops up. I mean, it's it's amazing how much material survives in odd nooks and crannies. But there, there is a definite record that the key uh, document that describes certainly the 1913 articulation of this policy was you know pulped in 1959. So it, it's it's gone for good. So what 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 was the aftermath of these changes? What were the consequences for men in the navy in in, in future years? Well, this policy doesn't last very long. I mean, the, the First World War breaks out, and frankly, the Navy thing has better things to do than, you know, worry about homosexuality. So, admit there, there are still prosecutions for homosexuality in the First World War, but they are fewer, and for a number of practical reasons. I mean, a, a court-martial requires you to get a panel of senior officers together, and frankly, they've got better things to do than that. They're also short of trained personnel, so you're not going to want to lose people if they can possibly help it. And so they tend to resort in all but the most extreme cases to basically just moving people around ships. So if they, you know, if someone's suspected, you just move them somewhere else uh, or separate the people that are involved. There, there is an interesting record in early, I think, in 1915. can't quite remember the date. But it's, it's lodged in the Admiralty Digest where you've got someone who is, it's as clear as daylight that if they are tried, they are going to be convicted. But the note is to the effect that if it becomes widely known in the Navy that you can basically escape naval life, so you can be sent back to civilian life, if you are found with, you know, a venereal infection in ANO, that people will use this as a way to escape from the Navy. So they don't want people to know you can get out of the Navy by being found to be homosexual. So you've got had a sort of U-turn in terms of the policy. After the war, you know, th things change again. Um, there are lots of interesting notes in the Digest, Admiralty Record Office Digest, to suggest they start looking again at ways of punishing this. But um, it's not going to be until much, much later that the sort of pluralistic, you know, values of our present age catch up with the armed services. 
I recall in your book you explained that Churchill, one of his many aims was to try and um, bring the Navy in step with progress and wider society and democratise naval manpower. Thinking about the First World War, did he succeed in broadening the societal pool from which sailors and officers were drawn, which presumably would have been of great use when the First World War broke out? Only up to a point. I mean, he does introduce a series of reforms in that direction. So one of the things he does is make it possible for promotion from the lower deck to the officer corps. And there is in 19... 12, 13, 14, a massive shortage of junior lieutenants. I mean, every time they commission a new battleship, they need 11, 12, 13 lieutenants, some of them quite specialist in navigation or gunnery or engineering or whatever, and they simply don't have the pool of manpower. So they they have to find ways to get more qualified people. And Churchill introduces what's called the mate scheme, whereby you know, good um, petty officers um, can come from the lower deck up to the officer corps. And some of these people are being recruited before the outbreak of war. More of them are being recruited during the war. And the process survives. But I mean, after the First World War, there's a great reduction in the size of the Royal Navy. And not only do they not need uh, lots and lots of officers, they've actually got a great surplus of them. So it sort of goes into reverse until the next war breaks out. And, you know, again, there's a large expansion of the Navy and they need more people. And this process starts up again. But it, it does build upon the, the system that, you know, Churchill created. So the mate scheme endures and, you know, Churchill is at the heart of that. Uh, so would you say that his changes and reforms, did, did they help at all to prepare Britain for maritime confrontation with Germany? Oh, undoubtedly. I mean... And this is not just the social aspects of it. I mean, he, there were a vast number of reforms before the First World War in terms of, you know, war planning, uh, bases, ship design, switch from coal to oil. Churchill's very interested in aviation, for example. So they're huge advances of all kinds. But ultimately, all these ships need to be crewed. You need a well-trained, contented, highly motivated um manpower base with the you know the requisite skills and desire to to do their job and a lot of churchill's reforms were aimed in that direction they they didn't all succeed i mean what he does for the uh, spirit ration for example basically changes very very little but um you know each step is a is a step in the right direction with the you know possible exception of the reform of um, the way you punish homosexuality. Although, again, to come back to that, I mean, we might not view it as progressive. It would, however, have been in step with civic society at the time, slightly ironically and disturbingly. The other ones you would tend to view as more progressive, you know, against contemporary criteria. And I think they did have an effect. I mean, if you take the um, reforms to religion, up to August 1914, it's, it's quite straightforward to say we will only have Church of England clergy aboard ship. As soon as the war starts and there's the possibility that people might, might start dying, you know, if you're Roman Catholic, just having access to a Church of England clergyman is simply not good enough. So they sort of move towards a much more ecumenical service. Um, 
as to say, naval service, um, you know, pretty much starts here. And, and you know, Churchill's involved in this. They have to find a way to include all of their sailors, wherever they're recruited from, in every aspect of naval life, including the religious life of the Navy. So these are important reforms. Absolutely. And what, what did motivate Churchill then to, why was he concerned with the spiritual practices of the fleet other than, like you said, um, being more inclusive and hopefully aiding recruitment? Well, before 1914, there, there's a general belief that uh, the naval chaplaincy service is, is good for the morale of um, the crews and that a you know, good moral bearing is basically good for sailors in general. So the Admiralty is very keen to promote solid uh, Christian values as they see it. The problem is the law says that aboard ship, this is basically not just a Protestant service, uh, it's a Church of England one. The chaplains have to be Church of England. And there's almost no way around this. But what they do before 1914 is try and accommodate non-Church of England sailors through the provision of Wesleyan, Presbyterian, Catholic, it doesn't matter what religion, uh, provision for that ashore. So they can't change it aboard ship, but they can accommodate it ashore. As I said, that's not good enough once you... Um, you know, get into the war, at least it's not, not for Catholics. But that's where they focus their energy. And and many of the, you know, senior members of the Admiralty are convinced that this is a very important part of the ethos of the service. So they're, they're keen to promote, you know, the good, good behavior of the crew. Uh, and actually, chaplains are involved in a range of things. Many of them are also naval instructors. If you read their confidential reports, a lot of them are involved in certainly the sporting life of the um, service. So they're, they're held to be, you know, a key part of maintaining good order, uh, good discipline and good morale. But as I said, the law says chaplain on board ship, the services aboard ship, they must be C of E. Stay, staying for a moment with the theme of, of, of uh, positive changes that, that, that Churchill implemented, I understand also he helped to restrict the more brutal forms of, of punishment and, and discipline methods for sailors. C could you tell us some more about that? Yes, I mean, most corporal punishment in the Navy had been suspended in Victorian times. It hadn't technically been abolished. It had been, um, so it was, it was there notionally. But in practice, um, it had gone. But that didn't apply to anyone who was rated as a boy sailor of any description. So they could still, in 1900, be subject to punishment by caning or birching. And indeed were. I mean, there were there are plenty of examples of those rated as boy sailors receiving corporal punishment of one shape or form. Now, there was quite a large humanitarian movement in Britain that regarded this as an abomination, and they wanted to end basically all forms of corporal punishment in the Navy. So it wasn't good enough for it to apply just to adult sailors. It had to apply to younger sailors as well. The problem here was the Navy didn't believe there are any meaningful ways of disciplining their younger members other than by corporal punishment. So this tends to be batted in backwards and forwards between the Navy and the various constituencies 
that wish to uh, change its practices, who are quite vocal. They're vocal elements in the press. They're vocal elements in, in Parliament. There are various MPs who stand up in Parliament basically every other day and ask some difficult question about corporal punishment simply to keep it in the public eye. And so what you get in the sort of Edwardian era is the Navy just begins to recognize it's going to have to do something. And it looks internally at what's going on in terms of corporal punishment. And when the Navy's not quite sure what it wants to do, it basically sends around a questionnaire. So on sort of three occasions before Churchill becomes First Lord, the Naval Law Branch just sends around a questionnaire about corporal punishment. You know, how much are you doing this? What difference does it make? What alternatives are there? You know, what do you think we should change? You know, questions of that nature, they vary slightly from questionnaire to questionnaire. Uh, and there are exceptions here, but by and large, the, the answer given is we can't really do without this, although we could probably modify this. And there is some modification. So birching gets suspended um, at one point. And then Churchill comes along and he there are various reasons why he wants to look at punishment in the Navy. There's quite a lot of discontent in the lower deck about the way it's being applied. So he basically institutes a wide-ranging uh, committee to look at this. The committee duly looks at it, it reports back, it has a big report, covers all areas. But one of the things it does is it says, okay, you know, we've looked at punishment for boy sailors. The most common non-corporal punishment, say called 10A, which was basically just sort of standing on the deck staring at the paintwork, this just doesn't work. All it does is it puts, you know, boy sailors next to the very worst members of the crew and gets them to associate with each other and it makes their behavior even worse. So we need corporal punishment. And of course, that's not really the useful answer from the point of view of the politicians who have constituencies that are against this, that they want to appease. So they find a mechanism not to abolish it, but to restrict it even further. So they restrict the number of crimes that can be applied to. They can restrict who can authorize it. They restrict the number of so-called cuts with the cane that can be authorized. So they don't abolish it. They don't suspend it. They sort of limit it. And then the war comes along and, um, you know, things change again. In fact, birching at one point gets reintroduced during the uh, First World War for young sailors committed, ironically enough, of um, crimes against morality. And you mentioned the boy sailors, so sailors under the age of 18. Um, why did uh, many of these changes and new rules not apply to more senior uh, officers? Well, I mean, corporal punishment for adult sailors had been suspended in Victorian times, so that, that was no longer an issue. But I mean, the reforms that Churchill introduced to discipline applied across the board in the sense that they had a look at the regime of punishment in, in general. So they're, they're instituting new forms of punishment all the time, and they're just finding difficulty in working out what to do. Um, I mean, one of the things they're worried about is so-called disrating. So, you know, I mentioned naval pay wasn't brilliant, but a lot of people got extra pay if they had good conduct badges or badges for specialist skills, things of that nature. So you could work your pay upwards and also your pension, incidentally, by good conduct. 
And disrating was a form of punishment where it took away your good conduct badges and had a huge effect on your pay and pension. And it was much disliked by sailors because they often felt it was applied unfairly. So there were reforms to the Rena regime of punishment to basically all categories of naval life. But corporal punishment, because it only applied to boy sailors, uh, the reforms only applied to boy sailors. So looking at, say, the, um, the Royal Navy today, so how much of Churchill's vision can, can we see in that today? What, what were the most significant consequences of his implementation? Well, the rum run it, ration um, has finally been abolished. That was, um, I think, about 35 years ago, more or less. As Black, Black Tot Day, I think, is, is still commemorated. It took a long time, but that has finally gone from the very small steps that were taken, you know, at Churchill's time. Interesting enough, corporal punishment came up again in the 50s. Uh, the rules Churchill had introduced in 1913 were more or less still there. And they had another look at them in the in the 50s. And they were sort of, um, for a series of bizarre reasons that you know, don't really correspond to sort of our logical way of thinking. But they did think it was time to get rid of these. One of them was that they thought the kind of people likely to be punished by it might actually enjoy it. And therefore, it was counterproductive, which is a sort of, peculiar way of looking at this. Um, but that's essentially gone. You know, the system of punishment's in, entirely different. Well, of course, we, we have a um, Navy that is not just recruiting manpower now. It recruits, uh, you know, people across uh, the, the spectrum of sexuality and gender. So, uh, you know, that aspect of what was happening in Churchill's time has not just been reversed, but essentially completely abolished in ways that I don't think people in the early 20th century would ever have considered possible. I mean, they viewed the service as entirely male, but they also viewed it as entirely heterosexual. Anything else they would have seen as a danger to its sort of uh, discipline and manpower. They wouldn't have been able to recognize the way we view these things today. As for pay and conditions, well, conditions have certainly changed. Pay has changed out of all recognition, although whether it's satisfactory, you'd have to ask today's sailors. And I know questions about, you know, conditions and, they, and you know, service housing and other things are in the news from time to time today. But they have changed out of all, you know, recognition to the time then. And then entry into the Navy has changed. I mean, the majority of officers in Churchill's time were recruited, depending exactly what date you were talking about, between the ages of 12 and 14. So their parents basically sent them to become cadets at the naval colleges at a very young age, and they were more or less committed to a naval career thereafter. It was actually one of Churchill's reforms to create a scheme where people could join the Navy after um, public school. Nowadays, you have to finish your compulsory schooling before you could join the Navy. It's not a part of your schooling. So those boy sailors, for example, it's not just cadets for officers. I mean, boy sailors were more or less put in their Navy by the parents, often because they couldn't afford to keep them. And that was actually the only area of recruitment before 1914 where they had a, a surfeit of people. So I mentioned the shortage of lieutenants. They had a shortage of skilled sailors of all type, except boy sailors. There were too many, you know, poor people in Britain who couldn't afford families of the size they had. Again, this is, you know, changed to out of all recognition, but it's, you know, to some extent, it starts here. You know, these, these small steps have ultimately long-term implications because they can be built upon. 
Um, and certainly if you went to the Navy now, I mean, we have a ecumenical chaplaincy service, you know, religions of all type are catered for, uh, indeed, not just Christian, not just different forms of Christianity, but not just Christianity. It's, you know, across the board. So, you know, usually different, but much of it started here. A lot of it was due to Tur Churchill. Some of it's due to the First World War. More of it's to do to the Second World War. And more of it's to do with general, you know, way society advances. But every little building block helps. And how has, well, has it, uh, has, your, has your study uh, altered your perception of Churchill in any way? Well, I think one of the key things is that there is now continuity where I think previously there was only change. So the standard interpretation was you're Churchill, the social reformer, he becomes first Lord of the Admiralty, and then you get Churchill, the warlord. That's, you know, you go from one to the other and the two are mutually exclusive. They're not. I mean, Churchill didn't suddenly lose interest in social reform as soon as he got to the Admiralty. It remained a key part of what he was interested in. Yeah, he did do all the other things in terms of you know, improving the material of the Navy, in terms of preparing it for war, but it wasn't an either or. And I, I think that fleshes out, that, that not, doesn't just change our sense of, you know, here's a man and then here's a different man. It also fleshes out the character of the man. I think it makes him a much more rounded figure, someone who's interested in all aspects of the life of the service that he uh, was responsible for. So I, I think you can see more continuity in Churchill's attitude and political life now, as well as a, you know, a character of more, I think, already interesting character, even more interesting. That was Matthew Seligman. Rum, Sodomy, Prayers and the Lash Revisited is out now, published by Oxford University Press. And we've now come to the end of today's episode, but we will be back on Monday when Lauren Johnson will be discussing Henry VI. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.